Votre attention, s'il vous plaît. Ceci est le premier appel d'embarquement pour le vol 365 à destination de Seattle. Dernier appel pour le vol 246. Votre attention, s'il vous plaît, le vol American Airlines 867 partira maintenant de la porte 14. Le vol 867 à la porte 14. I was struggling to stay lucid because I kept on, I kept on, I was, I was still on my feet, but every time I stopped for a break and a breather, I would, I would immediately fall asleep on my feet and, and start and go into some wacky dreams, dreams that were, when the previous night had led me to take my rucksack off, which wasn't what I should have been doing. And then the following morning, it was it were dreams about uh, why don't you just get on the helicopter? You know, just just go and check in. Your rucksack's the right weight. You know, they, 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 will, they will accept it. And and I'm saying, well, where where I don't see anywhere to check in for the helicopter. Well, do you see anybody else? No. Well, well, then that's because they've all checked in. You know, you're just the only one who hasn't. And, I, and then, of course, I'm I pull myself out of this, and I realise there is no helicopter. I just have to keep on climbing to get myself out of this so so I, I end up focusing down and down and to the next couple of minutes the next six eight footsteps to keep myself moving up the up the face and then um, as soon as I stop to rest I'm dreaming again in the last two episodes we've been looking at that hyper focus Finding those good feelings, as Dave Thomas put it. Being in flow, in the zone, whatever you want to call it. Inducing that sense of euphoria from a sort of unconscious control of your environment. Mina was using it as a way to maximise her physical performance. But there's a place in climbing where flow isn't going to be enough. The objectives are too long, too complex, and sustaining those periods of concentration isn't possible. At altitude, everything becomes harder. You can begin with a sense of euphoria, but as time passes, your body and your mind take the hit. Decisions and movement become more difficult. Rick Allen is one of the most experienced and accomplished high-altitude mountaineers in the world, with a sense of several 8,000-metre peaks behind him, including a new route on the north face of Daulagiri. He hit the headlines this year for an unusual rescue on Broad Peak. After deciding to set out for the summit alone, he became disorientated on the descent taking a fall down the face before eventually being spotted by a drone. Rick's no stranger to making difficult choices in the mountains. He's not been afraid to turn around in the past, and he's no stranger to suffering for his art. His experience on Broad Peak this year gave him food for thought on his risk-taking. It's also given me an insight into the psychological challenge of taking on major Himalayan objectives. How can you make those life-and-death decisions when you can't even trust your own mind? You're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. There, there, were, there was one, there was the, the moment when I was convinced that I was in such a comfortable place and, I, and someone was telling me to relax and take my rucksack off, I just did it. And, and considering my eyesight, my eyesight was strapped to my wrist, 
That involved a lot of effort to get my rucksack off and get the strap over my arm and over my ice axe. So that, so, so that was complete sleepwalking. I mean, there was no, that was, I've never ever been in that state, never done anything like that before in the mountain. So quite extraordinary. But then later on, I was in that half and half conscious, unconscious state when I, someone was, someone, I, I kept, one thought was saying, um, a land cruiser is going to come around the corner and pick you up. You know, all this, you, you're just worrying unnecessarily about all this stuff. You're just completely out of, you know, you, you're just, um, it's not all really as bad as you think. And then I gradually realized that it really is as bad as I think. <laughs> really is as bad as I think and um, nobody's going to drive around the corner and pick me up and I'm going to have to get out of here myself. So, so I was drifting in and out of that, of that state. Yeah, my, my, my team had come out, I think, probably early that morning to look for me, but I was so far away from where I, anyone would have expected to, me, to find me that he didn't find me and they descended and they, 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 they took the satellite phone with me with them and they took um, my pocket knife basically to give to some member of my family because they at that point thought I wasn't coming back. So they kind of wrote me off. <laughs> yeah. So I was missing, I was, I was a, a day late back to Camp 3, basically. I, made a, I ended up making a solo summit bid. I uh, decided to carry on and the summited and then coming back late that day things got out of hand and I, 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 I ended up being away from the line of descent the line of ascent where where there was some fixed rope and then um, getting into uh, taking a short fall over a boulder which which dis disorientated me a bit a bit and then I I, from that point, I started to descend, but to descend which further away from the line of ascent. It took me further and further away from where I needed to be. Then, I'm, then I ended up hallucinating, taking off my rucksack and dropping it, dropping my head torch. And then, because I wanted to keep warm, I decided to just keep on climbing down and recover them, which I spent the whole night doing. In the early morning, I recovered my head torch and my rucksack. But by that time, I was far too far down the west face. I couldn't get across to Camp 3 from where I was. So I realized I had to reclimb everything that I descended in the dark. And I spent the rest of the day uh, reclimbing the, the, the west face. And so that was when I should have been, you know, I should have been back at Camp 3 by that point. The drone spotted me. Someone at, someone at K2 Base Camp saw something enough to... to uh, wake their interest and so they launched the drone to see what was happening up on the west face of Broad Peak and um, they spotted me. They set about seeing if there was anyone up there who could come up and help me and there were, there were a couple of guides working on it with a commercial trip at Camp 3 so they would, said they would come up. Meanwhile I kept on climbing and got myself back to, the, to a point where I could actually look down and see Camp 3 and as soon as I could see Camp 3 I could also see these guys coming up to help me. So they started yelling and shouting and I started waving and and we met up and I went back with, to Camp 3 with them and, and so what it was all resolved. Do you think you'd have made it back without the support? I think I would. I think I would. 
but I really, it really would not have been good if I'd had another night out. Another, another night out. On the trip with him last year was Sandy Allen, no relation. Sandy and Rick's partnership has led to many impressive ascents over the past 30 years, most notably with the first complete ascent of Nanga Parbat via the Mazino Ridge in 2012. The ascent won them the PLA d'Or that year for achieving the objective which had seen many attempts since the 1970s. Sandy wasn't shy in telling Rick he'd made the wrong call on Broad Peak, and in Rick's mind, not having a partner to talk to was what trapped him into the hallucinations and got him into trouble on the peak. Yes, I mean, Sandy, see, we, we don't live very far away. We both live up in the northeast of Scotland. Um, but he's, I mean, temperamentally, he's very different. He's, Sandy will say right off the top of his head exactly what comes into his head. And sometimes it's really not nice. <laughs> it makes me feel not good. But whereas I'm completely different, I, 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 will, I, will, if I will just bottle things up and sit on them and not say a word. But I think we kind of got used to one another. We know what to expect. <laughs> Do you need to be good friends to be good time partners? Um, no, we're not, we're, not always, we're not always completely aligned, certainly. And, and sometimes, sometimes Sandy annoys me intensely. And then sometimes I annoy him intensely. I know, because he tells me. <laughs> but in the end, you're just you're just totally dependent on one another, and you have to get on with it. There's risk involved in all, or usually, particularly in the high mountains. There's risk involved in both outcomes. It's very much a case of weighing up the risks and choosing the least worst outcome. Trying to choose the least worst outcome, and the fact that you get away with it doesn't mean that you necessarily made the right decision. Uh, and I'm I am reflecting right now on the decision I made in uh, on Broad Peak in the summer. I got away with it, but was it necessarily the right decision? Sandy's convinced that I was out of it on one day on the descent from Nangaparbat, but I have no I have no awareness of having been out of it on that on that occasion. I know he's he's definitely not happy with the decision I made this year on Broad Peak. He thinks I made the wrong decision, um, and he told me so in no uncertain terms. He, he well, he had to. He decided to go down because he wasn't ready. He needed he needed more time to acclimatize, and I felt that I had just, ju- I was just enough acclimatized to be able to make a summit bid. And then I was staring at this bad weather forecast going forward thinking I'm not going to get another chance. Ultimately, it wasn't the physical, physical difficulty, but it was, the, it was the, the psychological effect of being so physically depleted, of, of not having slept for, for 30, 36 hours, of, of being dehydrated and, and um, low blood sugar levels and hypoxic to some extent as well, all, all combined. It was a battle to to retain my, um, you know, retain intelligent thought and intelligent decision making, and it wasn't always. But of course, on this on this occasion on Broad Peak, there was no one to pull me out of it. We we went after Everest. We we wanted to go and do a seven thousand meter peak, alpine style, just two of us, and we 
went to Pumori and climbed the south face of Pumori, which was fantastic. It, we, we called it the Scottish route, and it was very Scottish. So lots of fantastic grade five ice straight up this um, gully system. And I mean, not without its dramas, we, we managed to drop the tent. So we survived in snow caves all the way up the mountain. It was kind of, that, that really cemented our climbing partnership because we realized that we could, between us, we had the resources to seemingly to do, to overcome anything. And, and you know, in, in spite of the setback, it was an, you know, great, a great route and we survived. And, and so it was one of those, one of those things where you, you can look back on and say, well, we know we could do that and we did, you know, we, could, we did that and could do that. So what else could we do? Back in 1995, Rick and Sandy made their first attempt at the Mazzino Ridge on an expedition led by Doug Scott. The Mazzino is the longest ridge on any 8,000 metre peak. More than 10 kilometres of climbing over eight 7,000 metre summits before you reach the final route to the summit of Nagaparbat at 8,126 metres. It was the last great Himalayan ridge to be climbed, even making the mainstream press at the time. To the mainstream, Nangaparbat is the killer mountain. Back in 1895, Albert Mummery went missing after an avalanche on the peak. In 1970, Gunther Messner, climbing with his brother Reinhold, was swept away by an avalanche. In 2005, Thomas Humar became trapped on the Rupel face, instigating one of the most daring helicopter rescues ever seen. Sandy and Rick began their high-altitude climbing in the 1980s, as part of a generation of climbers which was blighted by tragedy. Their first expedition together, on the northeast ridge of Everest in 1985, came only a couple of years after Joe Tasker and Pete Boardman had gone missing on the same route. Some things have changed in the intervening years, making certain aspects of high-altitude mountaineering easier. But it remains one of the most dangerous pursuits you could take up. The ability to suffer is a key attribute, as is the ability to know when you've suffered enough. The Mazzino pushed Sandy and Rick right to their physical and psychological limits. I I had a I t- had Sandy take a photograph of me standing ready to go into the shower in the hotel when we got back to the Karakoram Highway, and I could have walked onto the set of Schindler's List and been hired as an extra. I mean, my cheeks were sunken in, my ribs were all sticking out, uh, musculature had all gone. I was completely gaunt and utterly emaciated. I was living in Australia at the time. By the time I got back there, I'd been eating healthily for five days. But when I got back to Australia, which is not renowned for being cold, okay, it was it was the Australian winter, but it wasn't cold. And I got under my downy in bed and I couldn't my body just wasn't generating any warmth I couldn't sleep because I was too cold and I had to sleep in down clothing in Australia for a week nearly a week before my body started generating enough warmth that I could go to sleep what sort of state was Sandy in? so he was slightly more healthy than I was because he'd he'd started with a bit more weight so he had a bit he, he, he just looked healthy when we got off the mountain. One of the consequences of, of getting into the 8,000 meter league was that we started to, we got an opportunity to climb with Doug Scott. And we went back to the Northeast Ridge with Doug Scott. And then he invited us on a succession of 
last great problems. One of which was the Mazino Ridge of Nanga Parvat, uh, which he'd already tried once. Then we went in 95 with him and Wojtek Kurtika and Andrew Locke from Australia. So I ended up with Wojtek and Andrew getting about one third of the way along the ridge and getting the full, fully appreciating the enormity of, of this ridge that goes on and on and being totally intimidated. We backed off because we didn't, we probably, we did, we knew that we didn't really have the resources to, in terms of food um, to, to, and fuel to go all the way. And the weather was too uncertain. And I'm, I'm sure that was the right decision at that time. At that point, did you think it was something that was going to be possible to do? That was, that was always the big question in my mind and Sandy's mind. And it took us 17 years to figure that out. In the intervening years, two parties uh, managed to get all the way along the ridge, but not reach the summit of Nanga Parbat. They were they they they, they, they uh, nine trips altogether were made to the, the Mazino Ridge, and two parties got to the gap between the end of the ridge and the and the summit. But at that stage, either the weather had, had uh, closed in on them or they were completely out of food or, or completely exhausted and they retreated uh, down, down the mountain at, the, at that point. So 15 years later, we knew that the ridge could be traversed and we knew the mountain could be climbed because, because it, the, the shell route goes up the, the Rupal side and then goes up near the ridge on that side. And in 2009... We went with an Austrian friend, Gerfried Gerschel, and climbed Nanga Parbat via the, the Kinshofer route on the Diamir side, so, which is the normal way it's climbed these days. That gave us another perspective on the ridge and, and an opportunity to learn, essentially learn a potential way off. And so that helped to crystallize our thoughts on, on the feasibility of going back to the Mazino Ridge. So we put this uh, this team together, which comprised basically um, six of us, and it also gave us it gave us the flexibility that if one of us couldn't go on beyond a certain point, there were enough people to, for the team to be able to divide, and and some people to go down and some people to carry on. I mean, we had this concept: the point of no return. What is the point of no return? And we there was a there was a particularly tricky section where we ended up doing a kind of Tyrolean traverse to you know, diagonal abseil to get across this gap and that was that was clearly somewhere where we were we wouldn't be going back across there in 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 any circumstances that we could envisage so we knew at that point that we're definitely going forward from this point uh, even if we end up going down the the shell routes um you know it's it's from here it's got to be at least to the end of the ridge. So there was a moment when we knew we were seriously committed. We didn't have any doubting voices. I mean, everybody, everybody was. Uh, I mean, they, everybody was so capable and so up for it that it was extraordinary. I likened it. It was the, the whole experience of going along the ridge was extraordinary because it wasn't. Most of it wasn't super technical, but. You know, the days kind of all blended into one another, and you lost sight of the fact that you, what the start was like, and you, the end was nowhere in sight. So every day was this amazing experience of walking along 
the top of the world. Of all, all the well, all the peaks along the ridge, of which there are about six or seven there, but just touched the, or just over seven thousand meters. We made the third descent of all of those. Um, so getting past the main the main one, the Mazzino summit, was a good feeling. And then, but we knew from the guys who'd made it as far as the gap that the, the hardest climbing was right at the end of the ridge. So there was always this tension because we knew that the most difficult section was still to come. Uh, and in fact, the last two days along the ridge were by far the most absorbing and, and, and technically difficult. By, by the time you got to day six, day seven, you, you realized that time was, time was slipping away through your fingers. Inevitably, food and gas was as well. You knew you could. You knew it couldn't go on forever. You know there was there was going to come a crunch time. All six of us got along the Mazzino Ridge over ten days, and then we went, we all made a summit attempt, and we all at some point during that day all turned around and went back to the tents. Um, a very very long and challenging day. Kathy was very very tired. Two of the Sherpas had a very close call. They they slipped on the snow traverse line back to the tents and, and slid a long way down a snow slope and were very lucky to be able to stop themselves before they went, before the, the, the slope tipped over a Serac. And so they climbed all the way back up and they were really shaken by that. We were practically out of food at that point. It seemed like maybe it was all over. And then Sandy makes this extraordinary statement in the morning he yells across to my tent. He says, when you've had your breakfast, come over and let's talk about our options. Because I thought I was bitterly disappointed the previous day. I thought it was all over. And I suddenly discover that he's thinking about it's not, maybe not all over. And the others were convinced it was all over and they definitely wanted to go down. But Sandy said, we don't, we don't, there's actually nothing forcing us to go down at this point. The weather's still fine. We've got a few scraps of food left. Let's just spend an extra night up here. Let's spend an extra day, an extra night. If we think we have to go down, we'll go down. But if we think we've got enough in, in us, it's still possible. We could make another attempt. And that's, it's very unusual. I have never, I've never remotely felt like making two simultaneous, two consecutive beds. <laughs> On an eight thousand meter summit, you know, within within two days, it, that that was that was um, new territory. I think it's both, new territory for both of us. Uh, but we had this feeling that having got so far and being so close, and the weather still being good enough, we we weren't going to turn back till we had to turn back. And there was nothing actually telling us to turn back at that point. Between us, we had enough rope, enough stoves, enough tents for us to be able to divide and they go down with two tents and a rope and and a stove. We still had a rope, a tent and a stove. So it made sense, it worked. They left practically all, whatever scraps of food they had that was left was all pooled and left with us. And that was enough for a night's meal. <laughs> and so they, they were happy with the choice. I think Kathy is, Kathy, later said that she left the old men to their Himalayan dream. <laughs> um, and so they had an extraordinary adventure going down. They were narrowly missed being wiped off the face by a huge avalanche going down the shell route. 
and they went off route and then um, Lakpa Rangdu broke his ankle lower down on the slope so they they had there they had a fair share of drama before they safely reached the glacier so so we stayed another night and when they, they went down we stayed a full day and a night just above the coal camped on these stony ledges I went wandering around and I found this this glass jar with a um, bottled fruit containing bottled fruit labeled East Germany so that dated it pre-89 probably left by Hans Shell and Robert Schauer I ate most of it it was it was pretty good <laughs> that we left base camp on the 2nd of July we made our first summit bid on the about the 12th I think the 12th of July and then we rested on the 13th. We made our second summit bid on the 14th of July and didn't summit. We got to within about 300 meters of the summit and dug a snow cave and spent the night. We basically just went with our sleeping bags and a stove. So we summited the next day at about 6.30 in the, in the evening because we kind of wandered about the top of Nanga Parbat is not straightforward. There are things that look like they might be the summit and they're not. And so, the, and the cloud was down, so we wandered about. Finally, the cloud all cleared and we could see where to go. Um, at that point, Sandy was really, really tired and I was able to break trail to the summit and we summited at 6.30 in the evening and then we just descended to our snow cave and had a second night in the cave. At that point... That's when the, um, the lighter failed to work. So we couldn't ignite the stove, couldn't melt water. We probably both had maybe a 200 mils of water left in our water bottles. That was, that was all the water we had. You, to do this kind of stuff, you need a high level of self-belief. The, 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 the danger, of course, is that too high a level of self-belief leads you to do silly things. Um, so there's, there needs to be some kind of balance there and yeah, too high a level of self-belief equals a big ego <laughs> and, and, and you can be a victim of your own success in the sense that you, you, you have, if you have, if you're extremely successful several times, you can, you can believe that anything's possible and then you go and then you just push, you push the limits a bit too far and that's, that's very, very, very tempting. So you need you need a healthy dose of sanity. We had a similar. I had a, a, a another another go on go back decision to make a year ago when the three of us were attempting an unfinished route on the northwest face of Annapurna. I was climbing with Felix Burke, um, Adam Belitsky, and we just had two horrendous bivouacs in a row on a, on a very steep face where there were no proper bivouac ledges and we were being enveloped in spindrift for hours on end. Do we go on or do we go back? In the end, we decided to retreat. Um, it just, it was one of those situations where you, you just seemed to me like we were, we were pushing ourselves out to a point where only, only one thing needed to go slightly wrong and we were going to be in a, in a world of pain and 
there was so still such a long, long way to go that um, I very reluctantly thought the best thing was to turn back. And we did, all, we did in the end, we, anyway, we all turned back. And I think that, I still think that was the right decision. Um, so yeah, you, it's, it's always difficult. No it's, no, it's not always difficult. It's, it's sometimes difficult. Sometimes, sometimes the elements make it obvious. You know, the weather, the weather is, the weather makes it very plain to you that you have to back down or the, or the, or the whatever the difficulties you encounter make it, make it a, an easy decision. And sometimes it's not an easy decision at all. And then you've really got to weigh up those, weigh up the risks. That's very, I mean, you, you talk to one another. And you have lots of time on a bivouac to talk to one another. And you, yeah, you talk these things through and you work, you, you figure out what, what you want to do. If you're lucky, you can sleep as well. But there's, there's, there's time to talk these things through. And that's, I mean, that's where, of course, where, things came unraveled for me this year because I had no one to talk them through with. Um, and that's the strength. Even when it's not, you, you know, you don't need a companion because of the technical difficulties are not that high. If you don't have a companion, you, things can all go wrong if you don't have someone to talk things through who can pull you out of, you know, talk, talks. What makes sense? What really makes sense? Later on on the descent, it was quite a, there was a very, there was a bit of a difficult choice to make the, the ridge bifurcated and it, I, I was, couldn't remember from two years earlier whether we'd come up from the right or from the left but Sandy did remember and we got we headed off in the right direction having two of you doubles your chances of potentially getting it right we have de developed a high level of trust between one another and you just know that, you, I mean, we don't always agree. Sometimes we end up disagreeing. But you that you know that there's someone who who is extremely capable and, extre and, and is basically going to do everything in his power to do the right thing for, for the two of you. That, that means that you, you just know that if you've got the best chance you're going to have of getting out of whatever situation you're in. Well, we have no food at this point. The last square meal we had was before before we made our second summit bid, so we have nothing left to eat by the time we come back from the summit, and we have no water. And that was the problem, because we we have both been on mountains where we had run out of, run out of food. We know we can we know we can cope with that. But we had never been on a high mountain and, and not been able to melt snow and drink. And that, that was, we were in completely uncharted territory. Not only that, we'd never even met anybody <laughs> who'd been in that situation, you know? Um, so so the, 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 we had no idea how our bodies would react to that. Uh, and And... We're, we're, we're brought out with the notion that, that you've got to drink more at altitude because you, you, you know, you, you're expiring all this moisture and your, your bodies need the, need, the, um, need the liquid. And it's, I think it was part, we were partly saved by the fact we were so well acclimatized because we'd been, we'd been climbing at 7,000 meters for 10 days. So we were extraordinarily well acclimatized. And 
we were eating snow, or of course, as much as we could. But that's very, it's a very, very ineffective way of, of rehydrating yourself. You can't rehydrate yourself that way. You just can't get enough down. Um, and we had no idea, really, how our bodies would react. It was, a, it was a surprise to me every morning when I woke up that I could still move. Um, but, of course, your blood gets very thick at altitude anyway because the red blood cells multiply and then as you get more and more dehydrated the blood gets thicker because there's just not enough moisture going into the um, body's systems including the blood system so the blood gets more sluggish thicker and therefore doesn't get around as well as it should and so more diffi I have more difficulty warming up my hands every day more difficulty warming up my feet every day because clearly the, the blood is getting like sludge. Yeah. And, and that made me more vulnerable to frostbite also. Yeah. Have you ever suffered badly with frostbite? Uh, that was the first time. Mm. I had had frost nip before, but on the final night of, of the descent, when we'd end up, we couldn't dig a snow cave because there was, the, the, the ice was very close to the surface. There wasn't enough depth of snow. We decided we had to stop where we were, and so we just scraped out ledges and sat there all night. And I was I I had chosen to take a ultralight sleeping bag with me to save weight. This was a one season Alpine bivouac type sleeping bag. I mean, great quality, but I got cold feet that night. And um, so the final day was I was I had by by that time I had one frostbitten foot. Everything takes longer. I think Messner says it. Every, in the Himalaya, everything's further than it looks, steeper than it looks, and harder than it looks. <laughs> and and yeah, it it took longer. We thought we would summit in a day, and based on our previous experience descending the um, Kinshofer route, we thought we would be off the mountain in a day and a half, instead of which it was three days plus that was due to exhaustion and the fact there was no one else on the mountain there were no fixed ropes there were no footprints we had to do all the work ourselves in contrast to the summit day the next day i was completely useless i was out of it i couldn't break trail and have didn't have the strength to break trail sandy had to break trail all the way what extreme climbing has in common with in being an astronaut is that they're both extraordinarily demanding of time and mental and physical commitment and it's 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 an unusual partner who can live if they're particularly if they're not involved to that level in the sport or the occupation our, our uncommon partner who can live with a someone who is as obsessed as we get from time to time <laughs> You know, it's it's like being a workaholic. I have been accused of it, but I no, I think I think I have a good balance. I think climbing climbing is one of the things that has been a balancing influence in my life. I like to think maybe it's people think it's probably an unbalancing influence in my life, but I mean, I I've I used to think that I that I managed a a social life and a work life and a, and a sport life that was somewhere close to being about in balance certainly at a time when I lived in Scotland and I and and I was where I was married 
But unfortunately, my first wife died of cancer back in 1999. And so, in a sense, I, that, that ceased to be something I had to take account of. So I, for a number of years, I had the liberty of being able to be much more focused on either my work or my climbing. I mean, San, Sandy and I have come to appreciate one another over the years. <laughs> and it works, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're not... Sometimes we, sometimes it, it does feel like we're pretty close. I mean, our climbing, it's, it's odd. I mean, our climbing partnership has lasted longer than... I hate it, sounds awful when I say this, but it's lasted longer than either of our marriages. But he, in a sense, he, he, he knows something about very, very close relationships because he's a twin that I don't because I'm, I'm, a, I'm an only child. You know, we both have different sides to us, but just what it comes down to is that it works and it works. And most of the time we like one another's company because <laughs> you do spend a lot of time lying in freezing cold bivouacs. As a teenager, I started reading mountaineering accounts. Books like Touching the Void, The White Spider, Into Thin Air and The Philosophy of Risk. One of the things which surprised me was how businesslike some of the accounts were. I thought you'd just go climbing with your best mate. But of course you need a lot more than that. Developing a partnership of trust and competence, as well as one where your objectives align, is a difficult thing to do. When you find that person who can put up with you in the mountains motivate you and call you out when you're making bad decisions, you've struck gold. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the series, don't forget that you can subscribe on all good podcast apps. If you're an iTunes user, you can also leave a rating or review, or you could just share an episode with a friend. Obviously, success is, is is wonderful, but but I've I've turned turned back off many uh, many many summits. I mean, I'm prob- probably of, of, of my expeditions to eight thousand meter peaks. Probably I've backed off at least fifty uh, percent of them. If you knew you were going to get up them when you set off, then it wouldn't be worth going. <laughs>